listeners, and welcome back to Why Science, a podcast about behavioral and emotional health research at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This podcast is produced by COBE, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with support from the Alt Lab and the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for Why Science is provided by Butcher Brown. Streamer purchased their new EP, Virginia Noir, at butcherbrown.bandcamp.com. Today's guest is Dr. Danielle Dick, the director of COBE and co-founder of Spit for Science. Dr. Dick is a professor in the psychology department, and her research focuses on alcohol use and mental health outcomes in adolescents. Welcome to Why Science. Today in the studio, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Danielle Dick, who is the director of COBE and a professor in the psychology department at VCU who studies substance use and mental health outcomes in adolescents. Dr. Dick, thank you for joining us. And could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I study genetic and environmental influences on substance use and related mental health outcomes in adolescents and young adults. And so we work on big gene finding projects where we're trying to identify the genes involved in why some people are more at risk than others for certain outcomes. And then we do a number of studies of kids as they grow up to try and understand what do kids who have high-risk predispositions look like as they're growing up, and then importantly, what kinds of environments reduce risk so that we can ultimately use that to inform prevention and intervention programming. And there's obviously a huge need for that kind of research, but I feel like if you're first thinking about like what would get a kid interested in science, like that might not be the first thing you think of. So where did you start when you first started getting interested in science? I went to college with no idea what I wanted to do and took a lot of different classes and was pre-med at the time because I felt like that was the thing to do. And I happened to take as an elective an abnormal psychology class. And I became fascinated by the brain as the last frontier of medicine. And I ended up getting to know the professor and working with him. And we are still in touch and colleagues now to this day. And at the same time, I was taking a genetics class. And I went to my advisor and said, hey, I'm really interested in this psychology class, and I'm really interested in my genetics class. And she put me in touch with a faculty member who studied genetics of mental health outcomes. And I ended up doing research with him, and the rest was history. I changed from being pre-med to going on to do my PhD. So that research that you did, was that the first time you had ever done research? And, and what was that? It was. And I actually did research with a few different faculty members. I did research in the area of social psychology with Daniel Wegman, who did some famous experiments and went on to Harvard. If you look up white bears, he did some fascinating work on, on the idea that when you try not to think about something, you can't stop it from popping into your mind. So if I tell you to not think about white bears for the next minute, you'll probably spend a lot of time thinking about white bears when otherwise you would have never thought about a white bear. <laughs> and so the way this relates to our life is when we try not to think about things that we're nervous about or we're anxious about, that that can build upon itself and affect mental health. So I didn't end up going into social psychology, obviously, but that was a great introduction to research. And then I subsequently switched over and ended up working with a faculty member 
studying the genetics of schizophrenia. So it was really in those early experiences of trying out different types of research and working with different faculty members that I narrowed in on my interests. So going from the work you were doing in schizophrenia, how did you end up honing in on substance use in particular? So the faculty member that I was working with at UVA helped me apply to graduate schools. And one of the schools I applied to was Indiana University, where I would work with a faculty member, Dick Rose, who actually this UVA faculty member had known since they were very young in their careers uh, up at Minnesota. And I loved the program at Indiana. I really liked Dick Rose, who would eventually go on to be my mentor. But I said to this faculty member at UVA, the problem is I'd have to work in substance use, and I don't have any interest in substance use. I want to work on genetics of schizophrenia. And he said, go to Indiana. It's a great program. You'll get great mentorship, and then you can apply that training to whatever you become interested in. And along the way, I became fascinated by studying substance use outcomes. They are all the challenges inherent in any kind of mental health outcome and trying to understand it. And I've always liked a good challenge. So we know that genes play an important role. We know the environment is important. But how important each of those things are changes across development. We know that individuals vary in why they use alcohol, that we know there's thousands of genes that are involved and it's very hard to find those genes. And so it was a really exciting puzzle to work on. And the fact that it affects so many individuals' lives and there's still such stigma around it, I thought that this was a really important area to work in as well. So I went on to do a postdoc in genetics after finishing my PhD in clinical psychology. And then I went to WashU in St. Louis where I was on the faculty there for a few years before coming to VCU. And it was really the ability to work with faculty at the Virginia Institute for Psychiatric and Behavioral Genetics. This is a premier place for studying genetic and environmental influences on substance use and mental health outcomes. And it was a chance to do that while being closer to home uh, since I'd started at UVA and my family was now back in the area here. So it was really a win-win to get to come back here and to join the faculty at VCU. Yeah. And so in working with those faculty, I imagine conversations arose that became kind of the foundations of what grew into Spit for Science. Yes. So I worked with faculty here to build a number of new projects and grants. And Spit for Science really grew out of conversations with Dr. Ken Kendler, who is the director of the Virginia Institute for Psychiatric and Behavioral Genetics. And the idea is that alcohol use and mental health challenges are prevalent on college campuses. And here we had all this research expertise, but our projects were going on at different places all around the world. And none of them were happening here in Richmond or at VCU. And so the idea was that we could bring this tremendous research expertise we have to a problem that was right here on our college campus. And that was the origin of Spit for Science, was 
Let's do a project focused on understanding genetic and environmental influences on substance use and mental health outcomes among college students, and let's do it here on our campus in a way that our students could then benefit from. So now, over the past seven years, Spit for Science has grown to include 62 faculty members, 32 pre- and postdoctoral trainees from 18 departments, and it covers topics ranging from smoking to drinking, sleep, romantic relationships, civic engagement racial and ethnic identity, mindfulness, empathy, trauma, gender identity, sexual orientation, pet ownership, and and many, many other things. And so obviously, as that grows, there's a need for a support system for that growth and also to contain all of the different projects that's been out from that. And so that was the creation of Kobe, right? Absolutely. So as Spit for Science grew into really a university resource and a number of initiatives started to spin off of the project because the idea was how can we create a community across all of these faculty who work on these many facets of substance use and mental health and well-being? How can we grow that research, create collaborations, and then use that research to feed back and benefit our university. And so that last part then really necessitated partnerships with the many other wonderful folks around the university from the Division of Student Affairs and many other units who are actually working with students who are doing prevention, intervention, policy, programming. And so that was where COBE originated, that we needed a structure, so we developed the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute to facilitate all of these many activities that were growing out of the Spit for Science project. And so to showcase all of those connections and to bring more community stakeholders in, I know there's an event coming up in April the from Research to Rehab Town Hall that's going to bring researchers from around the country as well as researchers from VCU to discuss all of these different topics that Kobe covers. Could you tell me a little bit about that event? Yes, yeah, so the Town Hall on from research to recovery is an opportunity to both showcase the research that we have going on at VCU and also bring in a number of outside researchers. And one of the things that we've wanted to do with Kobe is to do a much better job of giving science away. So of bringing our research findings to our students and to the broader community who could benefit from the research. Oftentimes, researchers are so busy doing their own projects and writing them up for scientific outlets and in journals and whatnot that we don't do as much in terms of reaching out to the community. And the town hall is one of the ways that we are trying to do this, to bring together a diverse audience of researchers, students, individuals who are involved in practice who are affected themselves or who are family members of those who are affected so that we can have a lot of different voices to come together and think about the issues of substance use and mental health outcomes in young people. And so also on a smaller scale, but similarly themed, there are events that are held every month called Kobe Connect, where you bring in researchers and members of the community to discuss these topics too. Yes. So Kobe Connect lunches are an opportunity for us to get together in a smaller, more intimate monthly basis. They're open to everyone. We provide free lunch. And as you mentioned, we have researchers come speak and present new findings out of Spit for Science or other projects that they're doing on substance use and mental health young people. And we also have folks from different divisions around the university that are doing innovative programming or courses surrounding behavioral and emotional health. 
And so the idea there is to really grow a community of individuals who are interested in this area and to build the research base and interesting and novel connections among people to, uh, to, to grow new ideas about how we can tackle some of these challenges and how we can promote well-being. So bringing all that together, it, it seems like the obvious goal of Spit for Science extending through Kobe is that there are a myriad of ways that people can be involved in research on substance use and mental health at VCU, and that we're here to invite them to be a part of that process, whether it's submitting a research question and being as a part of the front end of the study, or just promoting the fact that we have these findings here and that they can be useful to students. So could you tell me a little bit about some of those opportunities that people have and ways that they can connect with Kobe and help amplify this research? Absolutely. So there are many ways to get involved, and Kobe is everyone who is involved. We are an open community of folks who are interested in these kind of questions. So for faculty and student researchers, you can work with the existing longitudinal data that we have. You can add questions to upcoming surveys. You can select subsets of students for more intensive research studies that they might want to participate in. And in addition, you can, of course, attend Kobe lunches. You can visit our website where we create blogs and podcasts and other social media to spotlight the research and bring it to our community. We are starting new courses that bring together these faculty so that we can give this content to our students, give them access to it in ways that they can learn and also learn skills to promote their own well-being. So courses such as our Science of Happiness course. And we have a new director of community engagement who is also working on developing strategic partnerships with members of the community who would also have shared interests in these kinds of topics in young people. And so if you are someone from anywhere around the university or in the community, that has interest in behavioral and emotional health and would like to tap in with this collaborative community of researchers and other faculty to bring what we are learning about substance use and mental health outcomes and the promotion of well-being to your group, to your research, then please reach out and let us know. We love working with folks. That's what makes this so exciting is all the creative ideas that people bring about where we can take this next. So bringing all of this back to the research that kind of started this entire growing project that's beginning to involve people from all over the university. Back in January at our lab retreat, we did an exercise where we put two bulletin boards up and one of them said what we know and one of them said what we don't know. And we were focusing on substance use and mental health uh, outcomes. So in terms of things we know, what are some of the most important aspects of behavioral and emotional health that researchers have discovered that you think people should have at their disposal so that they can make better decisions and promote better outcomes? So my group focuses most on alcohol use outcomes in adolescents and young adults. So some of the things that we know and have discovered, both our group has contributed to this research and more broadly over the last decade or so, we know that genetic influences are important on alcohol use and on who develops problems. We're not all equally at risk for developing problems. And we know that 
genes become more important as you get older. So in early adolescence, what impacts which kids are drinking and how much they're drinking is largely environmental factors. But as kids have more access to alcohol, which is normative across adolescence, their own predispositions become increasingly important as they have opportunity to actualize their own dispositions and outcomes. So that by the time kids are about 18, we know that genetic influences account for about half of the variability between people and how much they drink and in the likelihood that they're going to be drinking in ways that are problematic. We also know that the environment can change the likelihood that even if you are predisposed to having problems, you actually will. So even though there are genetic predispositions toward being more or less likely to develop problems, dispositions are not destiny. And so the environment can play a big role in moderating how important an individual's genetic predisposition is. So at an extreme end, you can imagine if you were in an environment where there was no alcohol, so you are um, part of a religious group that strictly prohibits it. You live in a country where there's no access. Something like that. It does not matter what your genetic predisposition is. You will never develop problems. Now, that's an extreme example. But in that case, the environment just trumped genetics. There's all kinds of environmental variation, though, that can operate in a similar way. And so, for example, in adolescence, we know that among kids who have much higher parental monitoring, that the environment is far more important in determining how much they're drinking and smoking. Among kids who have very low parental monitoring, their genetic predispositions play a much larger role in how much they're drinking and smoking. And so there's a variety of environmental factors from parenting to peers to neighborhoods and community access that can impact the likelihood that if you are predisposed to develop problems, you actually will. Another thing that we know is that the predisposition to develop alcohol problems isn't largely specific to alcohol. And so what I mean by that is that there is no gene or even genes that impact specifically are you going to develop alcohol problems. There are a handful of genes that influence how your body processes alcohol, and that can impact whether or not you'll develop problems. For example, there's a variant that is found largely in individuals of Asian descent that um, in which your body can't break down acetaldehyde, the byproduct of alcohol, and so it causes either a severe flushing reaction, often nausea. If you carry that genetic variant, the likelihood that you're going to drink frequently and develop problems is extremely low. But most of the genetic risk for developing alcohol problems is through broader personality and temperamental styles. It's about our reward seeking and it's about our ability to think through the consequences of our actions. Adolescents are already notoriously bad at that because their brains are developing in such a way that all the reward seeking parts develop before the executive functioning, which is the part of your brain that puts the checks and balances in place and helps you think through the consequences of if you decide to go out and party all night with your friends before you have an exam the next day, how that's going to impact your future career prospects down the road. So 
that's true of adolescents in general, but people also vary a ton in that dimension. And so people who are more extroverted, more impulsive, they are at higher risk for developing alcohol problems. Those are not bad traits in and of themselves, right? Uh, uh, some degree of impulsivity and sensation seeking is good for entrepreneurs and other kinds of things. But it can also mean that you are more likely to put yourself in situations where there could be uh, heavy alcohol use or risky alcohol use. On the other hand, some people are more predisposed to uh, anxiety or depression, and that could be another pathway by which individuals could be more likely to develop substance use problems. So this speaks to the fact that there is no one genetic predisposition to alcohol problems. There are really several different pathways, and that it's through these genetically influenced characteristics that you can be more or less at risk, but they might not be directly genes that influence alcohol, the way your body processes alcohol per se. So this is part of the, what I find to be really interesting challenge of trying to understand genetic predispositions toward why some people are more or less at risk for developing substance use problems. So it's obvious that over the past 10 years, we've learned a whole lot about how substance use operates on a genetic and an environmental level, the different pathways that you can come to it, and a lot of different facets of how personality and different aspects of your individuality play into it. What do we not know? Like, What are, what are the new front that you're interested in studying and that colleagues of yours are studying that really excites you about being in this field? What we don't know is what are all those specific genes that are involved in risk. So we know unambiguously that there is a genetic predisposition toward risk, but finding the genes has been very challenging because it's thought that there's probably thousands of genes and each of them just influences risk a tiny bit. So we're making progress in finding those genes, but we're still far away from having found enough of them and understanding the underlying biology of them to really be able to do individual risk assessment. I also think that a big challenge will be as we start to identify those genes, which we are making progress, so I think that will be coming in the next decade or so, what are we gonna do with that information? We don't have much research in how people understand what genetic predispositions mean, how they are going to use and interpret information about their own risk, how we as researchers or clinicians are going to give individuals that information. And so I think those are big questions when it comes to personalized medicine. And what will we do with all of this genetics research that's coming out that are really exciting and still yet to be sorted out? Part of what we will need to do to get there, and these are things that our group is involved in, is understand what are the pathways of risk associated with carrying risky predispositions. So we need to understand what are the earlier behavioral manifestations. Another thing that we do know is that 
genes that influence substance use problems in adulthood can manifest as behavior problems in younger kids, right? Because they're highly impulsive from the time they're toddlers. So it shows up in lots of different ways. So thinking about how can we use this information about the pathways of risk to develop very early prevention and intervention at appropriate points across development. That's another area that I think is very exciting and that we as researchers have not done enough yet to connect basic research with the translation of that research into improved prevention and intervention. Well, I would venture to say that through Spit for Science and Kobe and the million other things that you have going on, that you're making great strides in that direction. And I just want to say thank you very much for coming on today and best of luck with all your work moving forward. Thank you. Thanks to Dr. Danielle Dick for joining us, and thank you for listening. Stay tuned for a new episode of Why Science every other Thursday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and our home website, kobe.vcu.edu. Until next time, take care. Thank you.